Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now save $30 on the American-made steel FS56 RCE trimmer. Real steel. The FS56 RCE is made in America of U.S. and global materials. Offer valid through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Gates and ready to go. Hot by with Hunter Withrow underway on this Wednesday edition. Glad you're with us across the Outkick Network as we broadcast live from 6th and Peabody with Yaw Beer and Old Smoky Moonshine. Chad, we always say it's a jam-packed show. Uh, it definitely is today. Walker Jones, who testified before Congress Tuesday uh, and represented the Collective Association, and he runs the, the Grove Collective for Ole Miss. He joins us in about 20 minutes. We'll recap what he had to say, what lawmakers uh, were, were asking him, and what he heard from NCAA President Charlie Baker and others while he was on Capitol Hill. Interested to get his take there. Bobby Carpenter returns this week. He's on the show. Uh, of course, the topic, Ohio State and Penn State for the former Buckeye. That's coming up later this hour as well. Clay Travis, founder of OutKick, each and every Wednesday, that'll be an hour number two. Plus, later in the show, Danny Cannell and Kurt Schilling back on the show as we are on the path, a fast one, by the way, to the World Series. Chad, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Hutton. Uh, thrilled to be here. Going to be a fun yep. show today. Plenty to get into. I uh, can't wait to talk a little uh, NIL and collectives yeah. with our friend from Oxford coming up. Chad, uh, Kyler Murray is uh, apparently... Back at practice for, for Arizona, quarterback there who's recovering from the ACL. So they've started that clock for the, the timetable. Could also be because the trade deadline's coming up in two weeks. We'll see what happens with the Cardinals quarterback. We've got uh, Jalen Ramsey, who's back at practice for the Jacksonville Jaguars. And Trevor Lawrence is optimistic that he's going to play tomorrow night, despite the knee injury that he suffered late in the game this past week against Indianapolis. The same cannot be said for Deshaun Watson. Brown's quarterback spoke with reporters today after not practicing, and he hasn't practiced since September 22nd, that he is, uh, it's a pain tolerance issue, more or less, because it is a, a rotator cuff issue for Watson on his throwing shoulder. He says he's not able to put a timetable for his return. Uh, went on to say that uh, his return is up in the air. Uh, this coming from the same quarterback that two weeks ago, three weeks ago now, said he was going to play. Since then, they've had a bye week, and he's missed two starts. The Browns, though, continue to scratch and claw defensively. They got the win last week. Now they're on the road against Indianapolis, potentially yet again with quarterback P.J. Walker at the helm of the Browns' offense. Chad, this is the... This is the storyline that we'll pick up in great detail from inside the locker room if Walker, who didn't lose the game for Cleveland a week ago, ends up being the detriment to another great defensive effort for the Cleveland Browns. Then it becomes, okay, if it's just a pain tolerance issue, and by the way, he was cleared to play against Baltimore and chose not to, and now he's continuing to not practice yet again. It's, uh, it's going down a road that, to me, will eventually scream the, 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 the fact that the veteran quarterback with the guaranteed contract isn't giving everything he's got to play despite the pain. He can play through it. The Browns have already told us that. They cleared him, choosing not to. And you've got the, the veterans on the defensive side especially that are going to be very disgruntled behind the scenes. I can only imagine. If, if this continues, this has now it, it expanded the time frame past what was originally thought to be a, a short on the, on the sideline, short stint on the sideline, and it's turned into much more than that. It's a terrible look, uh, whatever's happening there in Cleveland. And um, Tyler Castle, our resident Browns fan That's here, right. even sent us in, in a group text earlier that he'd prefer Justin Fields at this point, to Deshaun Watson. That's awfully telling. 
uh, given Justin yeah. Fields' uh, play so far in Chicago. Now he's citing that in Cleveland it would have been a different story for Fields than it has been. I say that to say that, to me, when I read the text, I didn't think that was completely outrageous. And who would have thought that the last time that Deshaun Watson was playing for the Houston Texans before he took two years off, one, to pout over the organization, two, to face a number of allegations about sexual assault, only to then parlay that into the first fully guaranteed contract for a quarterback for a player in NFL history. And he has completely laid an egg since that point forward. And now not only has his play not been worthy of a guy making guaranteed money the way he is, his attitude, his want to, his desire to help his teammates and be a leader on the field is being questioned. Whether it's fully warranted or not, that is the perception right now. This is an injury that either he could have played through or gotten through quicker. That is the perception of Deshaun Watson. It's not good. And Hutton, you're right. I mean, P.J. Walker just did enough to not lose the game with that great defense. But he's a part of a win over the San Francisco 49ers who were unbeaten coming into that game. So how much longer is this going to go on? And as the weeks pile up, whether the Browns win or lose, what is that going to do to the locker room in their response to Deshaun Watson and how they respond to him whenever he comes back? Yeah, and, and I mean, he threw two picks a, a week ago. But again, like the, the defense responded in that game. They, they had plenty of penalties and, and flags that went in their favor. They still won that game. You're right. They handed Brock Purdy his first loss as a starter for San Francisco in the regular season. The, the, the quotes from, you know, you've got Stefanski saying that he's, he's improving each day, but he's still day-to-day. Uh, that's coming from the Browns head coach. And Watson saying it just depends on the process of the medical staff and the treatment, the rehab that we're, we're doing day to day. So it's up in the air for sure. Uh, asking if he had a chance to uh, join the Browns for his the upcoming trip to Indy in week seven. So the saga continues. Look, and maybe Deshaun Watson completely changes the narrative. I, I think back uh, to the last dance. Uh, with Scottie Pippen, right? He was uh, upset about his contract, totally the opposite situation, yep. where he wasn't getting paid enough. He decided to have his back surgery or his surgery right before the season to screw over the Bulls. Michael Jordan didn't like it, said Scotty was being selfish, came back to redeem himself by fighting through back spasms and playing a great clinching game against the Utah Jazz. Maybe Deshaun Watson's story ends with him battling through some injury and leading the Browns to a playoff win, and the city of Cleveland and all of Northeast Ohio rejoices in the way the guy plays the game in the end. I don't see that happening right now. I have no evidence to think that's going to be the case. Right now, Deshaun Watson is proving every negative stereotype about the spoiled, pampered athlete that gets the guaranteed bag and then quits. That's what it looks like right now. I hope that changes for the sake of a lot of people, Browns fans first and foremost in this, but that's what he's proving. Whenever an owner or anyone wants to argue it, they're going to point to Deshaun Watson, and I don't think that's right because I don't think every quarterback in the NFL has Deshaun Watson's mentality right now. I think most would play through this. Most would try to get back on the field. But that's the negative stereotype that he's playing right into at this point in time. Yeah, uh, Trevor Lawrence is saying that he's optimistic he can play on a short week after having that knee issue uh, on Sunday. We certainly know about Burrow and others. Uh, it's just, it, it, it's peculiar, Chad. I, I don't disagree with what you're saying about the mentality of Deshaun Watson, but he, he's doing this after his best performance as a Cleveland Brown quarterback. This was right after the week three beatdown of the Tennessee 27 Titans. 27-3. to three. And it was Watson that went off in that game. And it was, I mean, he's, he opened up the offense a bit whenever Chubb got hurt early in the season. So I, I don't know or understand what has happened behind the scenes. But what once was a shoulder contusion is now uh, the, the, the rotator cuff issue. But there's not much detail to it other than that, other than a pain tolerance which was always the case because it would be the shoulder contusion that would also be a pain tolerance problem for him. He says he's not wanting to hurt the team, and to this point, he hasn't because of the defense. But when the offense doesn't pick up the pace, when you have to go get points and a win late, when it's 3-3 to in the fourth quarter, 
with two great defenses, that's when it's going to come uh, to the to the surface and, and bubble up. They've got the Colts this week. They're on the road there in Indy. They're on the road in Seattle for week eight. Week nine puts them back home against the Arizona Cardinals before a visit to Baltimore on November the 5th. That's their next four games. And I only look at the next month or so uh, because he says not to put a timetable on it. Well, this stretch coming up looks like three straight defensive battles and then a massive back-to-back series against the Ravens and Steelers in, with, within the AFC North, which is wide open and very competitive. It's the only division right now that's 500 or better for every team. Watson needs to be a part of that. The storyline can certainly change, but the, the detail here is so vague that it's open for speculation. Yeah, it's um, winning cures all would be the saying to apply to most anything. This is a situation where winning doesn't cure anything for Deshaun Watson, and I don't really know what hurts him worse. Browns continue to be successful with the new quarterback and winning games or Browns dropping games while he doesn't come back and then the locker room and the fan base turning on him more and more. The fan base will be fine and happy if they continue to play like they did on Sunday against the 49ers and win games. But I don't know that either it's a difficult spot for Watson because neither one of those scenarios helps him either with the locker room or with the fan base. It's just the best of two evils that you're picking from for him personally. You know what what needs to happen is he needs to come back and play like he did against the Titans right. in more games, and then everything will be forgiven. You know what else would be a massive storyline right now? It would be if Joshua Dobbs wasn't traded right before the season started. Because yeah. that guy could actually help the team win. Coming up, uh, we've got uh, Walker Jones who's going to join us. Chad, he was on uh, Capitol Hill yesterday testifying on behalf of the Collective Association, which he and... 30 other programs are a part of, collectives across the country. He runs the Grove Collective uh, for Ole Miss. And uh, I bring him up because, of course, there were certain talking heads, including Charlie Baker and others, that wanted to push Title IX and inequity, saying that it's, it's totally out of hand, there needs to be uh, transparency, and there needs to be guidelines enforced on the NCAA's behalf, but they need federal help in order to do that. They need lawmakers to make a law in order to curtail where we're headed for name, image, and likeness. Where we're headed is a, a, a next television contract for the college football playoff with a boatload, boatload of money. And they're trying to cut that off with a cap right now, where we went over it yesterday, 9% of the average Power 5 athletic budget goes to the players for student aid. The others, uh, vast majority of the percentage, 42 to 45%, goes to coaches' salaries, staff, uh, administration, and buyouts for previous coaches. I point all this out because you got the Power 5 decision makers and the, the big college football decision makers, they are seeing dollar signs today. And that's because Netflix is getting into the sports streaming realm. They're finally dipping the toe in the water. And it's not just because they're promoting F1 or promoting certain PGA Tour golfers. It's, it's more than that. They've already admitted that this is their foray into the what could be live streaming of sports on Netflix. We've already seen it from Amazon. We've already seen it from Apple. Now Netflix is going to do it with the... Uh, golf event that will feature PGA Tour members and F1 stars leading up to the Las Vegas Grand Prix. I bring this up because Netflix, Apple, and Amazon, that's where the next bucket load of money is going to come from. ESPN's already ponied up. We've seen the deals, but CBS and Fox and NBC for the Big Ten, for the Big 12, and... Of course, Notre Dame on their own. ACC is stuck where they are. Realignment has happened. More dollars are coming into this through the streamers, through the online distribution. And if you already got Amazon, who's paying a billion dollars to the NFL for Thursday night football, 
they're going to also dive in on the college football playoff. That agreement, that deal will be up in two years. Uh, it's a two-year agreement for the 12-team playoff format. After that, Chad, it is wide open. And that's where we see, I think, the branch and the break between the haves and the have-nots. And the fact that Netflix is also going to be in the mix now, I don't think they're hiding that. It's college football or the NBA that are going to benefit the most from this because the NFL is already getting their billions. And now college football is about to. So here would be my question with this, Hutton. Um, and this is a bigger question that needs more time to, to sift through. Senator Tommy Tuberville came on the show yesterday and he said there needs to be a revenue share. Take a percentage, give it to them. But he said it needs to go to every athlete. Man, woman, everyone on campus, evenly distributed, that all the money has to go to every athlete. And I'm thinking, man, that's kind of like a socialist structure. Everyone gets the same amount, no yeah. matter what, no matter value, no matter television value, no matter how much they're bringing. Do we prefer that to a university-by-university university decision structure on who gets what in terms of their student-athletes? based on value to the university, based on sport? And then what Pandora's box will we open up at that point when the quarterback of the football team is getting checks from the university as part of their ratio of television money and the star women's volleyball player is getting a check for $350 compared to whatever astronomical amount of money the quarterback is getting? Just something I've been thinking about that even if that happens, that's still not going to look fair when the rowing team gets the same amount as the defensive line for a Big Ten team? Well, they'll get the, they'll get the initial payout in that structure, but you know what's not going to happen? A booster or a client, an advertiser saying, hey, we want the quarterback to represent us. You think the university is going to turn or that a away? Collective. No. It's still going to be the same thing. Collectives and schools fighting over top athletes and top sports with money. We'll discuss more with Walker Jones. He's uh, up next. And by the way, for the Collective Association, they're open to regulation. What's up, everyone? It's Nick Wright, and I got something exciting to talk to you about today. Angie, your ultimate destination for getting all your jobs done well. Now, Angie isn't just your average home services marketplace. It's a game changer with over 150 million homeowners served and a network of over 200,000 skilled pros. Angie has experience and expertise to tackle any project with ease. Whether you're looking to spruce up your backyard or undergo a major home renovation, Angie's got your back and their pros are locally based, often running small businesses right in your community. And here's the best part. Angie makes the process seamless from researching and comparing pros to scheduling services at your convenience. Angie's user-friendly platform puts you in control. So why settle for anything less than perfection when it comes to your home? With Angie, you can trust every project will be completed with the utmost care and professionalism. So get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today to discover why homeowners across the nation are turning to Angie to get all their jobs done well. Sixth and Peabody, our location with Ehaw Beer and Old Smoky Moonshine. Top Mike with Hutton Withrow across the Outkick Network. About to be joined by Walker Jones, who testified before Congress yesterday uh, for the the 10th hearing on Capitol Hill for the future of college sports and name image likeness. I think he's certainly uh, on behalf of the collective association, which he's a part of is the Grove collective at Ole Miss. One um, of the top dogs. Yeah. One of them. Yeah, for sure. Um, yep. He uh, changed the narrative of the perception of some of the, some of the uh, lawmakers on Capitol Hill that believe that, Collectives are not for the uh, policies that would make that would do away with state regulation and make make it more federal across the country. Any college better? sports. Yeah, we're about to be joined by him uh, here momentarily. 
Uh, it's quite the battle that's going on between collective NCAA student athletes, okay, coaches, administrators, everyone. Again, six the Peabody location with Eha Beer and Old Smoky Moonshine. We say hello right now to Walker Jones, uh, who is uh, back from Capitol Hill and back uh, hard at it to work with uh, the the Grove Collective. Uh, Walker, thanks for the time, man. Thanks, guys. Happy to join you. How many lawmakers uh, that uh, you sat in front of yesterday do you think believed that collectives uh, as a whole are not for uh, the, the, the regulations that are being pushed by the NCAA and others right now? Uh, the, the, the thought would be you prefer it state to state instead of uh, the, the, the entire country being under the same guideline and policy. Well, look, I think that's a that's a big point of discussion that we had yesterday. And, you know, again, the, the it's a nuanced question when you think about, you know, the patchwork of laws that are out there. I mean, right now uh, it's working state by state and we're 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 fine with it being state by state because it's worked. It's worked well for us in Mississippi. It's worked well for others. Um, we don't see the, the epidemic of it yet mm-hmm. on a national scale, but. I think there is a little bit of a worry that if you have, you know, varying, if every state ends up having varying state statutes, um, do you run into some inequities there and some competitive disadvantages? And, you know, there's a lot of states, too, that still don't have NIL laws. And so, you know, a state like Georgia doesn't have an NIL statute. Uh, Utah doesn't have an NIL statute. So um, there's a lot of them that still don't have them. And so I think that's probably the biggest challenge is that you've got three buckets of um, state statutes that were drafted at the at the infant stages of NIL when it first came to be in 2021. You have ones that have been amended since then uh, to be more uh, favorable. And then you have the other states who haven't done anything. So it's a little bit of a, you know, you, you sometimes you have advantages by geography. And I think that's probably the big discussion. I think from a collective standpoint, we don't think that's the biggest problem uh, right now. And uh, but we certainly understand why others would be concerned by that. And I think we stand ready to to listen. And, and you know, the point about the collectives is we can provide the real feedback to all these stakeholders so they can make the best decisions. So and be most informed when determining is there a national standard or not. NCAA President uh, Charlie Baker was was also there. His first public uh, sit down and public comments in person with with lawmakers, um, and he was pushing many things as others were about uh, it, trying to make it so that athletes cannot be classified as employees. They, Title IX was brought up quite a bit. Yeah. Is the real issue that right now athletes are getting roughly nine percent of the athletic budget? And they want to cap it at that instead of allowing an NFL system that gets 49.5% of the media rights deals that are going much higher. 2007, the SEC distributed $10 million per school, and it's expected, it's, pro- it's projected that in 2029, it could be a, as high as $105 million per university. That's a big jump, of course, but 9% would be 9%, not 495 Correct. Yeah. And and again, I think there's what you're seeing is some of these traditional stakeholders that have had control over all this for decades um, now having to deal with change and and loss of control. Really, uh, you heard Senator Kennedy from Louisiana kind of call Charlie Baker out on that yesterday. Like, so we're redistributing money and the world's going to tilt off its axis now, you know, so. You know, um, I think there's there's a little there's concern that, you know, they don't have control over it. And, you know, it's chaos and it's the wild, wild west. And look, some of that may have been true in the first two years, you know, even eight to 12 months ago. uh, Some of that may have been true. But my point yesterday to them was, look, we're just now going into year three and there are growing pains with any fair market model out there. And we need to continue to evaluate this thing and let it self-govern itself a little bit. Like we're seeing at the collective level with the athletes, a little bit of a reset and a revision back to the mean in some of these sports. And we're also seeing a huge growth in female NIL deals and non-revenue deals as well, which is a good thing. So again, I just don't buy into the doom and gloom and oh my gosh, if we don't cap this thing, it's going to destroy college athletics. A lot of those same people three years ago said, if this Supreme Court case gets passed, 
you know, it's going to kill college athletics. Well, obviously we see it here today. That's not happening. Viewership is at an all-time high. You know, there's more talent distribution. So parity is at an all-time high right now. And so, you know, it, the overall, in, in my perspective and our perspective on the collective side was college athletics is in a pretty good spot and it's really healthy. And our athletes are solving for socioeconomic problems. They're staying in school longer. They're able to get themselves into a better situation. And again, going into year three, we're starting to see that that self-governance a little bit where athletes don't see the portal as the pot of gold on the other side that they thought it was maybe a year ago. And we're seeing some of the valuations come back down. We're seeing more distribution of the money. So again, I just think we need to give the market a chance to kind of evolve, just like any free market model that has growing pains. But my gosh, man, the overall overwhelming uh, impact of NIL has been incredibly positive. Walker Jones is the executive director of the Grove Collective for the University of Mississippi. Walker, what percentage of lawmakers you've come across do you feel like actually understand what it is that a collective does? <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's very high. I hope yesterday helped. Uh, that was one of the, the, the purposes that we were saying uh, we wanted to be involved in one of these hearings. There had been nine of them. No collective had been involved in them. Over 80% of the money in NIL is going through collectives. We're at the ground level with the athletes, the agents, the parents, the coaches. We kind of know what's happening. We're at that point of intersection. So that was the point yesterday to your question of, look, let me define for you what a collective is today. And I said that the Big Ten commissioner kind of took a shot at us yesterday uh, about his perception of collectives. And I just said, look, I think that's an outdated opinion and perception. I think that may have been true 12 months ago. But collectives now, much like the Grove Collective, are being run with a, a full-time staff, business professionals, with infrastructure, resources, and tools. And it's not just about writing a check anymore. You know, it, it and, and you know, I think that may have been the original cause of collectives, but it certainly isn't now, especially the ones that are functioning at a high level. So to your question, I think yesterday we made some headway in trying to dispel some of the notion that we're the boogeyman and we're, we're doing more harm than good. But I'd still think the the vast majority of people out there on those traditional stakeholder sides look at us like, I don't know if you're friend or foe. And we're trying to tell them, hey, look, we want to be productive to this whole conversation. And, and oh, by the way, the majority of the athletes in the commerce is going through us. So you might as well work with us. Yeah. And I know there's been an effort to sort of turn the collectives into an, another collective and for there to be some solidarity amongst collectives, even though each individual collective works with a different university. Just right. hypothetical, if, if there is a government entity or the NCAA that decides to go after one collective that, that's in there, is this a united front where all the collectives are working together to try to solve issues like that? Once the NCAA, and we know it's going to happen, the NCAA decides to launch an investigation or make claims about one of you do all of you get involved? I think there'll be a little bit of a rallying around whoever that group is. And, and you know, we I was there not only representing Ole Miss and our collective, but 25 other Power Five collectives that have come together to form this trade association for the very reason of, you know, giving us uh, strength in numbers, giving us a unified front, a voice um, on the legislative conversation, and also, too, um, sharing best practices, you know, and, and we heard a little bit yesterday about, oh, this is just pay for play. It's just pay for play. Look, is there an element of pay for play in, in NIL? Of course there is, but there was pay for play way before NIL and collectives didn't bring about pay for play. I can assure you we're at least now adding a lot of structure and transparency. We submit all our contracts to our universities, uh, for approval. We're talking to other collectives. If this was strictly pay for play, do you think I'd be working with Tennessee and Georgia and Alabama closely if we were trying to steal each other's players and cut each other's throats? You know, so, you know, the fact that we've got 25 Power Five collectives that have come together to create this unified collective voice, uh, I think shows that we're trying to be additive and productive to this whole conversation. And, and yeah, I think if, um, you know, if, if the NSA wants to go after, you know, any of us, I think we all are confident in how we're doing business. And we will rally around each other because we do think we are doing far more good than negative. And, you know, our athletes trust us. They listen to us. And when there was nobody there, you know, collectives were born out of the ineptitude and inaction of the NCAA and universities. 
And we filled that void. And yeah, we were probably shadow organizations at first 18 months ago because they didn't know what to do. But now we figured out the game a little bit and we're running our business like a transparent, well-staffed, structured entity. Mark Emmert didn't want to lead. He, he stepped back from that. How would you describe Charlie Baker as a leader? And is he capable of meeting in the middle here uh, in your dealings with him? Yeah, look, he and I have had some <laughs> have bumped heads a little bit um, over the summer and, and yesterday. But I, look, I respect Governor Baker for raising his hand and jumping into a really untenable situation that he didn't create. You know, uh, Mark Emmert and the NCA for decades were inept and dismissive um, and would not change and didn't want to change, wouldn't listen to the athletes. And so I do have deference for Governor Baker in the sense that he has taken on a really tough job. He is trying his best to work, like I said, a very untenable situation um, and, and trying to rebuild some, some trust when he doesn't have a lot. There's not a lot of goodwill or trust, you know, with our student athletes in, in the marketplace. So um, I do think, you know, that whether he, he and I may disagree on a few things and we've traded a few shots at each other, I stand ready, willing to work with him, to help him. Uh, I do have sympathy for the job that he has taken on. And I respect the fact that he took on a really tough job at a tough time, but, um, but I, I just want him. And it's like yesterday, it was funny after the, after the hearing, he walked up to me and he said, man, you and I have a lot more in common than I thought. And I said, exactly. And, and we do, you know, um, now we have some differences and we don't believe in giving them an antitrust exemption or limited liability protection in some areas. And, you know, there's some areas that we don't think they should be involved in. And, uh, but there is some points in commonality we have with him. And, and I, like I told him yesterday, we stand ready to help work with him. And, and again, my whole point was, look, I'll leave it to really smart people to determine some of these big topics and decisions that need to be made. But my role, our role can be a source and a sounding board of, of tangible real-time information of what's really going on with the athletes, the agents, the commerce at the ground level, and we can give really good information so he and others can make the most informed decisions going forward. And I think if we do that, then we're playing a great role in serving a great service here. Uh, but again, I, uh, you know, I respect what the challenge that he has and, and stand willing and ready to work with him. So we had Senator Tuberville on yesterday, Walker, and I asked him this question. I'm going to ask you the same one. What does compromise look like? on all sides of this, because you know when you bring this issue up, it can be divisive and you can hear extremes on one side of, oh, the kids should never get paid, to, oh, this is the greatest thing to ever happen to sports ever, and it's never going to be any issue. W what does compromise look like, and can we attain that compromise? Well, look, it's and it's great when you say Senator Tubble. I kind of chuckled my former coach <laughs> at Ole Miss yeah. and now a senator, which I never thought I'd ever say that, but Anyway, you can truly be anything you want to be. In we life. call him Coach uh, too when yeah. he joins us. So yeah. we get it. No, yeah. and I love Coach, and and Coach has been great to me, and I love Coach, and I love his involvement in this conversation because I think he gives a great perspective uh, due to his career, obviously. So I think compromise can come in various forms. Um, I think that you know the one thing that that I think I kept hearing from Congress in our meetings on Monday, we met with twelve different senators, and then in the hearing was. We really need to be careful about how much we want the congressional government, you know, Congress and the federal government involved in collegiate athletics. You heard Ted Cruz say it yesterday, you probably don't want us determining what rough in the passer is or <laughs> what the transfer portal is and things like that. You know, and that's the one thing. And I told Coach Turtle that the one thing I don't love about his bill is the transfer portal stuff. Like I philosophically don't disagree with what he's saying about the portal, but I don't think the federal government needs to be the one to fix the portal. I think that should be left to the commissioners, the conference commissioners and the SEC, you know, the SEC, the Big 12, Big 10 uh, and the NCAA. So I think compromise can come in, in various forms. I would say broadly that a light touch from the NCAA um, and some, you know, nudging in the right direction to the powers that be who I really believe. And I say this out of respect, no disrespect to, to Governor Baker, the NCAA. I really think it's it's the conference commissioners. You know, what was the power five, now the power four. I think Greg Sankey, Tony Petiti, um, Jim Phillips in the ACC, you know, guys like that, I think they are the ones that could probably bring people together. They control all the revenue. They control a lot of the narrative, um, the competitive landscape from a you know national championship standpoint. And I really think if you just put this on the NCAA, 
you're going to have such a tough hill to climb by giving, trying to give the NCAA teeth back across in a broad spectrum. Now, is there a role for the NCAA to play? Absolutely. But I really think conference-wide intervention on enforcement and legislation is probably the best path forward and the one that would be most amenable to the student-athletes uh, and all the other stakeholders in her. And I think, again, the federal government's role could be a light touch on maybe a broad federal um, standard or, you know, maybe some protection or, or, or like you heard Jack Swarbrick say, this new um, model of collective bargaining without employment. If we could figure out what that looks like, where there's a co collective bargaining, bargaining atmosphere that didn't create employment, and create that new mechanism, which would probably take the federal government to give an exemption of employment, but create a collective bargaining atmosphere, that may be where we could we could find really good middle ground. Walker Jones has uh, joined us. A great conversation here. And here's hoping uh, you'll you'll join us again, maybe after the 11th hearing, maybe after the 22nd hearing. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, however many hearings yeah, it takes to get it done. Hopefully right. you can keep joining us. Hey, guys, love the show. And look, I never thought I'd ever be sitting before Congress talking about NIL when I took this thing on uh, 16 months ago. So we're in uncharted territory. And uh, love your show and happy to come on anytime, yeah, guys. Appreciate, appreciate that, you hopping yeah, on with we'll us. We'll reach Thank back you. out. There's Walker Jones. Uh, uh, great uh, insight there from the collective point of view. And uh, plenty to discuss later in the show about the comments he had. I, I love his answer right there yeah. about compromise. Coming up, Bobby Carpenter joins us. He'll preview Ohio State, Penn State, get the Buckeyes' perspective from Bobby Carpenter, the Buckeye. That's next right here on Hot Mike with Hutton Withrow. If you follow me throughout the years, you know I'm a South Dakota girl at heart who grew up in a ranching family. And I know that America First isn't just a political movement. It's a kitchen table issue, literally. You know, I always support American family-owned companies, ranchers, and farmers who put high-quality meat products on the tables of their fellow Americans. And my friends at Omaha Steaks are the experts. With Father's Day right around the corner, what better gift to give Dad than the experience of world-class Omaha Steaks? This package includes a mouth-watering assortment of Dad's grilling favorites like Omaha Steaks Butcher's Cut Top Sirloins, Juicy Boneless Pork Chops, Deli-Style Gourmet Jumbo Franks, and their legendary Omaha Steaks Burgers. Go to omahasteaks.com and use promo code OUTKICK at checkout. Get mouth-watering gift packages starting at just $99. And as a bonus, use promo code OUTKICK to get $10 off your order. Our thanks to Walker Jones for joining us. Sixth and Peabiter location for Hot Mike with Hutton Withrow, the home of Yeehaw Beer and Old Smoky Moonshine. Coming up, Clay Travis joins us in about 40 minutes from right now. A bit later, Danny Cannell plus Kurt Schilling back on the show today. Can't wait for that. Back on the show right now, Bobby Carpenter joins us. Former Ohio State Buckeye. A massive week coming up. Kickoff between Ohio State Huge. and Penn State. Yeah, we've been waiting, Bobby, uh, both for your return on the show and for this game preview. Can't wait to jump into it, man. How are you? I'm doing well, gentlemen. It's uh, It's been fun. It's been an exciting First half of the season, but now for Ohio State, finally getting to the meat of their conference schedule as they take on Penn State here, which, you know, I'm, I'm a little disappointed. I, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of the noon kicks. I'd like it to be at least 3.30. I think that's a nice window. You know, if you're on the road, you never really, really want to play at night, but I guess I'll, I'll trade that off. But, but noon is so early, guys, to get it going, especially for people on Central Time to kind of pull them in. I know the top three in the Big Ten are really good. I just don't know the pecking order. And the schedule has led us to October and November to figure that out. And this is the first of that. What do you make of Michigan, Ohio State, Penn State, in no particular order, and how much this game determines kind of the outlook for the conference moving towards Ohio State, Michigan later? Well, you know, this is the first of the matchups. So whoever loses this, should they be able to beat Michigan, depending on what happens in that third game, you know, you may get into a tie break situation. And, and ironically enough, the tiebreaker for the big 10 is their record against their big 10 West opponents or their big 10 West opponents record rather. And so Penn state having beaten Iowa, and I think Iowa 
I don't believe they play Michigan this year and they do not play Ohio State. Penn State, I think, would have the advantage if you got into a three-way round robin situation. That's crazy. But this is it is because I would they, they do not play Michigan. You're right. A team yeah. with no offense that somehow <laughs> finds a way to win games. Incredible. Guys, I I went through this with Jacob Hester yesterday. Their next four games are at home. They just beat Wisconsin. There's a good chance. There's a good chance that they're not going to lose a game the rest of the year. I mean, that's that's real. So they're going to probably be eleven one, be eleven and one, and somehow be ranked like 18th behind a bunch of two loss teams. But that would determine it. Should it get to that round robin scenario, and that would mean they'd all have to beat each other. But this would be the first of it. So it's not, you know, the complete end because you would still have some control of your destiny should you get a little bit of help. But I don't think it's a place where either of these teams want to live. I've said that, at least to me, James Franklin and the Nittany Lions, if they're going to climb the staircase and stop being the third team or, or the team that can disrupt whatever happens between Michigan and Ohio State, this is the year to do it in this college football landscape. Do you agree? And if so, does Penn State have what it, what it needs to pull off the win on the road? Well, it's a lot of people in Happy Valley have been talking, if not, if not now, then when? You know, this seems to be the year, although you're playing a very good Ohio State squad, you're playing a very good Michigan squad. All teams are kind of different in how they're built. I mean, Michigan, we've seen what they've been the last couple of years. Really good up front on both sides of the line of scrimmage. Really good running game. J.J. McCarthy's improved. You know, I think their offensive weapons have gotten a little better. The Ohio State obviously has the elite weapons on the outside. Defense looks improved, but they have a younger quarterback and a guy who's a first-year starter in Kyle McCord. And then Penn State, you look at what they have, like got a really talented defensive front. I'm not sure if their secondary is as consistent as maybe a Michigan, a Notre Dame, you know, as far as other teams that Ohio State has played. I think they have some more elite players, especially on the perimeter, on the edge of the defensive line. They can get after the pass rusher. They have for the quarterback, they have they're near the top in the uh country in sacks. Uh, but part of that is you're leading by a lot, but they can overwhelm you. The one thing that's unique, though, you know, they'll lean into Singleton, they'll lean into Allen in their running game, and you know their young quarterback is pretty darn good, but they haven't really utilized his ability with Oller to push the ball down the field. He reminds me a lot of Josh Allen. He's a big kid. He's a strong kid. He moves fairly well. He, he looks a little, not maybe like the most fluid athlete, but he gobbles up yards. But he, he, can, he can throw it. But they just really haven't pushed the ball down the field. And I want to say they're near the bottom half of the Big Ten in yards per play, which means they really haven't had that many explosives. They've been very methodical with their drives, which I don't know if in these big games you can consistently drive against a good defense without having any big plays. I think it's just too hard. Bobby, who is this game more important for personally, James Franklin or Ryan Day? Well, that's a, that's a good one. I think you know Ryan Day gets fired up about a lot of things. I think people would probably be okay if he lost this one and beat Michigan. Uh, so I think that's ultimately more important. James Franklin, you know, he's said a lot of things, but this would be big for him to get to this point because you look at last year, it's what they've done a lot. They beat everybody but Ohio State and Michigan. And so that, excuse me, becomes the question. Uh, this would be the first domino to fall for them, and I think that'd be pretty big for James Franklin. Staying in the Big Ten, Bobby, uh, I do want to ask you about Michigan and Jim Harbaugh's comments that J.J. McCarthy's on pace to be the greatest Wolverine quarterback of all time. And the stat he brought up was pretty crazy that 61% of the drives that he's started have ended in points so far. And that's the most impressive thing he can say about him. Obviously, Michigan also built around the run in many ways. What do you think about Jim Harbaugh's claim? Well, I guess it's how you judge quarterbacks. And we have a million different ways. I don't know if wins are a quarterback statistic, but I do believe you want a quarterback who's a great leader. And I think Jim Harbaugh saw himself as that. And I believe he fancies J.J. McCarthy that. And the great leader is a guy that ends drives with points, preferably touchdowns. And if so, if you're doing that, you know, 61% of the time, and then you have to look at their touchdown percentage in the red zone and how that ultimately looks, that's the objective of any offense. We can talk about total yards and all of this and that, but the objective for the offense is to score the ball and not turn it over. You know, and if you can do that at a high rate, which he's been pretty good taking care of the football. I think he had one game with three picks, but other than that, he's been very efficient this year. He's continued to get better. He's athletic, and you see him move the chains with his legs. He could maybe go down 
is the greatest quarterback. Everybody looks at you, know, Tom Brady, but Tom Brady wasn't great at Michigan. I mean, he was hanging on his job to his job from Drew Henson most of the time, and he probably wasn't given the shot that he should have been. It's going to be tough to overcome. I mean, you know, Brian Greasy won a national championship. They've had some really talented quarterbacks, uh, but he's been to two playoffs. If he goes to a third and wins a national championship, I'd have to say that he might hold that mantle. As you see the landscape now for the top contenders for the playoff, can the Big Ten get two teams in this year? I think the Big Ten has two teams that are good enough. They may have three. The reality is, though, I mean, you look around the conference. The ACC most likely will have a team that is worthy of getting in. It looks like Florida State, but North Carolina is undefeated. They're sitting there, I believe, at 12, and I, they won't play Florida State until the championship. You would think that the pack, the Big 12 champ will have a nice claim, and whether that's Texas having redemption against Oklahoma or Oklahoma running the table. If they do that, there's no way you're turning them down. You know, you look at the SCC champ. I I don't think that there's a way you wouldn't get them in. Now, maybe Georgia loses a game without Brock Bowers here over the next six weeks, and that could get a little squirrely. Maybe they lose to Alabama in the championship, but I don't think you're going to neglect a one-loss Alabama champion, uh, SEC champion, who only lost to Texas. And then you look out west, and there's probably – you know, you look at Oregon, you look at uh, Washington. I mean, Utah still has a pathway there. Oregon State still has a pathway. And so there's a, a number of teams. And so maybe there's a lot of cannibalization that happens. But I don't know if there's going to be any conference this year who gets more than one team in. And, and I mean, that doesn't even count Notre Dame, who if they would have beat Louisville, they would have had a pretty strong claim coming in as potentially a one-loss team should they run the table the rest, rest of the way against Clemson and Duke. So to me at the top, I mean, this would have been the perfect year for the 12-team playoff to yeah. see because I don't know if there would have been overwhelming odds for really any team as you watch on any given Saturday. And you're like, well, they look pretty good, but then I remember them last week or two weeks ago or whatever it is. Like the, Every team, I think, has some warts this year. Bobby, you look at Texas A&M's situation with Jimbo Fisher and the fact that Texas and Oklahoma are going to be moving into the SEC – does that fact make it more urgent for A&M to make a move if this season continues to go down this path? Or does that make it more urgent to stay the course with Jimbo Fisher, given all the change and this programs around them that are obviously going to be competing with them for recruits now in the same conference? I mean, it's really a great question. I mean, Jimbo, he's kind of been the ultimate tease. I mean, but they have the season during COVID where they went 10 and one or, you know, nine and two, whatever it was, yeah. and had a really good year. You know, that he's almost, he almost beat Nick Saban this year. Like, but they also lost to Miami. I mean, they, they've looked rough at times as well. I mean, they've had their opportunities. You know, the question is, you know, for Texas A&M, like you're paying a lot of money now for a team just simply to play spoiler the rest of the year. And that, that's an expensive accessory package. I'd rather be buying the big engine than a sweet spoiler and whatever other accessories go on the outside. So they ultimately have some decisions they have to make. He's recruited really well, but I don't know if that's – it obviously hasn't translated to the expectation of high-level wins. Maybe they end up going 9-3 and three this year. Maybe they go 8-4. and four. That's better than what they did last year. But when you're recruiting at that level and then you're ultimately paying at that level but not getting teams that are at least challenging in the West on a year-in and year-out basis – like that to me is where you've got to separate it. We can say as much as we want about LSU this year and how bad their defense is. I mean, there's still a one-loss team that's played some pretty darn good football. They just can't stop anybody. Like Jimbo, they just find a way to lose games, and it's unfortunate because I think that he's done a good job in the past. It's just that he hasn't got it figured out at A and M. Yeah, there's a disconnect at some point there with him and the locker room and uh, everything that's been going on now. What is it? It nine straight losses now, Chad. Eight. It's it's eight, it's eight or nine. It's it's two seasons. It's been worth it, of games they haven't won on the road. Yeah, and it could be going into three seasons because their next two road opponents, Ole Miss and LSU, uh, doesn't look great well, for the it, Aggies. It's, it's like you mentioned. It, it's kind of last year was a disaster. There's no other way to cut yes. it, right? Th this year, I watched them Saturday against Tennessee. They've got really good talent. They've got great defensive line talent. They've got good talent at wide receiver. They don't seem to want to throw their talented playmakers at wide receiver the ball at times on Saturday against Tennessee, but it's just coming up a little bit short, coming up a little bit short against Bama, losing 20-13 to 13 in a weird defensive battle against Tennessee on the road. Um, but, Bobby, we've seen it time and time again, coming up just a little bit short, 
cost some good coaches their job every single year. I mean, that's essentially when you're a coach at a big time program like that and getting paid all that money, like you're not getting paid, you know, to go beat your non-conference schedule. You're not getting paid to beat the bottom half of your conference. You're getting paid to coach against the other elite coaches when they have talent that's near equatable to yours. And you guys are right there. You need to outcoach them more often than not. Like, Look at Nick Saban. We've talked about Alabama and some of their deficiencies this year. And granted, they've been undisciplined, had a ton of penalties. You know, Milrow hasn't necessarily been perfect, but they found ways to win. And like another guy, Brian Kelly, like I guarantee you he doesn't feel good giving up 40 points a game. But you know what? They're finding ways to win. And maybe it's not a national championship caliber roster, but they're still in competition. They're not getting embarrassed. And you're not seeing them go out there and go seven and five, eight and four. This is better than last season but you're still seeing them lose those close games. Uh, Columbus is always known for high, high ticket prices to get in. Uh, where does this week rank? Because we've seen the secondary market is blowing up for Ohio State, Penn State. Well, some of it's going to be weather. I think the get in the door price right now is about a buck seventy-five. Um, I don't know if that'll go up or down here over the next couple of days. Uh, it's just some of that's it, it's supposed to rain in the morning, but I think be good. By kickoff time, so Good. you know weather weather kind of screws that up a little bit here in the north this time of year. But I, I would say that as far as you know, games outside of Michigan, the Penn State game is always one of the hottest tickets. And you know maybe Notre Dame, notwithstanding last year, the Penn State at home is about as good as you're going to get. And those ticket prices are generally you know around two hundred bucks to get in for. I would define them as below average seats. Good seats on the fifty or between the thirties, you know, 15 to 20 rows up, those things are probably going to run you, you know, 800 to a thousand dollars right now. Final 15 seconds uh, prediction uh, presented by Carpenter HVAC. I'm curious how you think the game plays out on Saturday. Ooh, uh, it's, I think it'll be tight. I think it'll be more of a defensive struggle. Uh, I don't see it getting outside of the twenties. I mean, I would say okay. Ohio state, maybe by a touchdown in there. I know the spread's kind of tight. I kind of like it. Maybe, you know, 21 24 somewhere 13 10 maybe a 17 but a very low scoring contest bobby you're the man always enjoy these conversations and previews we'll do it again next week thanks bobby thanks guys there's bobby carpenter uh series six and channel 84 is where you can catch him let's come back from the beach headlines next right here on hot my with Hunting with Rose.